You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. I don't know about you, but I don't like being weak. I don't like feeling weak. I don't use coupons. They print them out at the grocery store, and I don't use them because I got money. And I don't even use coupons at Chick-fil-A because I got money. I don't need anybody's help for me to get a chicken sandwich. I don't want anybody to pay my way. I don't want to depend on anybody. I don't want to need anybody. I don't want to feel or be seen as weak. I want to be strong. I want to win. I want to be the best. I sat and watched a basketball game yesterday, and, and I was just tempted uh, to lash out at those volunteer high school referees. It's just in my nature because I wanted my grandson's team to win, and it was the best team, and he's the best player, right? I want to win. I don't want to be weak. I want to be seen as competent. I want to be seen as intelligent. I want to speak well. I want to lead well. I want to be a success. I want to be in control. But the fact of the matter is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter um, 1 in, in God's Word, that is not how God works. Listen carefully to what the Scriptures say in, in 1 Corinthians 1 about how our, our Lord works, and He makes it clear. And we're in Judges today, so if, if, if you want to look at 1 Corinthians, that's good, but, but, but I'm just trying to get you to that place 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he said, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All seven billion of us, that no human being, not just Christians, not just church people, not just people here today, so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. If you are here today, and you have come face to face with your sin and the fact that, that you are standing as a, 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 with, with the target of the full fury of the wrath of God on you and you're going to die in your sin, but you recognize today that Jesus Christ lived the life that you could not live and Jesus Christ died the death that you deserve to die and Jesus Christ rose over an enemy that you could not defeat. If you're here and you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are in Christ and it is the work of Christ that saves you. And that's precisely what he's saying. He said, and because of him, completely because of him and his work, you are in Christ who because who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So I don't need to try to add to or perform or be good enough or be strong or win or to show off or be the goat. I don't need any of that. God doesn't need any of that. God is working to save people, and he saves those who are weak, and then those who are weak, he becomes to them wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, here's the bottom line, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, because the fact of the matter is this, we were created 
We were designed, God has made us biologically, emotionally, um, he's, he's made us philosophically, everything about us, the way he made us, the way we think, the way our heart works, the way our lives operate, the way we relate. God made us to praise and give glory to him. And so let us come to grips with that this morning. Quite frankly, though, that's counterintuitive to my flesh. It's against my thinking. It's against my nature. It's against my heart, and it's just not how the world works. I want to be the wisest. I want to be the most spiritual. I want to be the most theologically adept. I want to, be, uh, I want to have the most faith. I want to win all the arguments. I want to be strong. I don't want to be weak, but that is not how God works. Let us come to grips with that. As we look at Gideon, we've already seen last week that Gideon was weak. Gideon was weak when God chose him. Gideon was weak when God performed miracles before him. Gideon is weak in our text this morning. And the fact of the matter is, as we look at the text, God is asking Gideon to get even weaker. We're going to see that in Judges chapter 7. Why would God want us to even get weaker instead of us getting stronger? Wouldn't the world be better off? Wouldn't our message be better off? Wouldn't our church be better off if, if Shaquille O'Neal would leave Papa John's and, and, and come over here and walk in the door, all seven feet, 300 pounds of him, and, and give his testimony? Wouldn't that be the most powerful thing in the world? Wouldn't it be great if Tom Brady would sober up from, from his uh, football cele celebration of the, the, the Super Bowl and come over here this morning and profess Christ? Wouldn't that be great if Michael Jordan, who, by the way, is from Wilmington, North Carolina, and that's where I'm from, Wilmington, North Carolina, I don't know if that means anything to you or not, but it is, it's, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of it for 62 years, right? Wouldn't it be great if he would get saved and the text is saying no? I mean, it would be great if they did praise God, but God's not interested in using people who are strong and famous. God is saying, I want to use the weak. Why do you want to do that, God? So no one would doubt that God alone was the sole source of the deliverance of his people. So that, so that no one would doubt that God alone is the sole source of the deliverance of his people. When we are weak, God has us right where he can use us to put his strength and glory on display through us. As we read through the last part of Judges chapter 6, if you would turn in your Bibles there to Judges chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 36. Um, and then we'll get into chapter 7. But as we begin reading the text of Scripture this morning, I want you to think about this little phrase that I'll say several times during the message, and hopefully um, it will grind itself into our brain. And if we don't leave with uh, having memorized Judges chapter 6 and 7, you'll at least remember this phrase. Our weakness is God's platform for the display of His glory. Our weakness is God's platform for the display of His glory. Glory. I'm going to read the text in three sections and explain each section and, and share some things with you from the text that I think are meaningful for us today. I want to begin in verse 36 of chapter 6, and then I'm going to jump over um, to verse 9 of chapter 7. And here's what I want you to see in those verses. First of all, here's what I want you to see. God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. Look at verse 36 of chapter 6. And this is a famous story. 
You hear somebody say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put a fleece out and see what God does with that fleece. A fleece was, I guess, the, the skin of uh, a, a lamb, lamb's wool, maybe that's at least that's the way I pictured it in my mind. And it, the lamb was not alive, but it was something like a rug, a furry rug. Okay. And uh, the text is going to show us that what Gideon did is he took this this furry rug and put it out and prayed and said, God, do something that defies nature to this rug. He asked him twice. Some people say, well, Gideon was sinful when he did that. I, I, I'm not sure Gideon was sinful when he did that. Let's, we'll get into that in just a second. Let's look at verses um, 36 to 40. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry uh, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out dew from the fleece to a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so. That night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. So, so let, me, let me try to explain this, and let, let's apply it to how we approach God. First of all, Gideon was not asking God to give him a sign. Gideon lived in a, an age and in a place where polytheism, many gods were talked about. Many gods were worshipped. There were many supposed deities that bless, blessed crops and ensured human fertility and controlled weather. And they worked in a, a general way, that ways that were consistent with the forces of nature. And so here Gideon is, wondering in his weakness, even after seeing the angel of the door do something supernatural, he still wondered, who is this God? What kind of God is he? Is he like the Canaanite gods or is he some other God? Is he different? Gideon was not asking for a sign. Gideon was seeking to understand the true nature of this God who was revealing himself to him and asking him to deliver his people against all odds. Gideon is saying, I want to know you, God. I want to know your nature. I'm fixing to go do something that no other God has ever asked me to do before, and I need to make sure that it is you. I need to know that, that you are God and who you are, and I need to know that you are the God and not a God. So Gideon wanted assurance as to the character and nature of the God that he was fixing to risk his life for. A lot of people risk their lives for gods that they have no relationship with. Yahweh has revealed himself to his people so that they can know him. Let me, let me just share... Um, three things that we would draw from this text. Here's what Gideon is, Gideon is saying. I need to know, God, that you are personal. I need to know that you are personal. So I'm going to ask you to do something very specific. I want to know that this God who is talking to me is listening to me. I want to know that I'm not misreading circumstances. I want to know that I didn't have uh, some kind of dream because I ate pizza the night before. I want to know that I'm not confused or crazy or imagining something. So I want to know, God, that you are personal. So he lays a very specific prayer request out there uh, to make sure that it's not mother nature and it's not father time, but it's the God of heaven that's actually working in a powerful and profound way. Secondly, 
Not only do I need to know that you're personal, but I need to know that you are powerful, that, that you're not a God like the Canaanite gods, like the Midianite gods, but you're the God that is the God over all things, and you are not working through the natural processes of nature and claiming that God did it like these other gods are. Like, we're going to pray to this God and the weather's going to be good or the weather's going to be bad. Or we're going to pray to this God and there's going to be some natural consequence. No, I want to know that you, God, are working outside natural processes because I know that I'm naturally weak and to defeat the Midianites and their partners, it's going to take a power that I don't have. So I need to know, God, that you are powerful. Thirdly, here's what he's saying. I need to know that you're a God of providence. And if you will look at verse 9 of chapter 7, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, so he's now still dealing with his weakness. If you're still struggling with weakness, if you're still struggling with self-doubt, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Now, he's fixing to go down to a camp so close that he could hear somebody talking. He's going to be as close to them probably as, as I am to Mike and Lynn right now. That's scary in and of itself. That took a tremendous amount of faith and obedience. Verse 11, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locust in abundance. I don't know if you know what locust in abundance looked like. I've never seen locust in abundance, but I can tell you one day I was standing outside my house when we were in Uganda, East Africa, and I noticed a cloud in the sky, and it was a bunch of bees. And I'm, I don't know if they were killer bees or not, but I was a killer missionary. Amen. They flew to the end of my house. I'm not exaggerating, and flew in the eaves on the end of my house and got in the ceiling and in the roof, and there was a vent system along with um, um, just a uh, drop ceiling, and they were going crazy. And I had something called Doom. Doom is DDT. Um, some of you don't know what DDT is, but old people know DDT. If you had bug problems, you got you some DDT until they outlawed it here in America. They didn't outlaw it in Africa. And I took care of those critters, but I'm telling you, they were scary. And if you're looking at a bunch of people that look like a bunch of locusts covering the ground, you see all of their, their wicked, mean camels. It is a scary sight. And he goes right down to the edge of their camp like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. That is a massive army. Verse, 11, verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. Remember, when we meet Gideon, he's in the wine press grinding grain. He's the loaf of barley bread. He's the loaf of barley bread. Tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Gideon needed to know not only that God was personal, not only that God was powerful, but he needed to know that God was providential. He needed to know that God was a God of providence. He needed to know that God was in control. He needed to know that God was going before him. 
He needed to know that God controlled the future. He needed to know that God had not only power over nature, but God had power over his enemies that he was calling Gideon to conquer. God, I need to know that you control all things. I need to know that you are a God of providence. I need to know that you are orchestrating the details of my life and orchestrating the details of this impossible thing that you've called me to do. When we find Gideon, all he's concerned about is baking a loaf of bread. And I'm afraid many of us, all we're concerned about is what our next meal is going to be. We're just concerned about getting by. We're just concerned about making it. We're concerned about what we're going to drive. We're concerned about where we're going to live. We're concerned about what the weather's going to be. We're concerned about so many different things. But what, what we need to understand is that God wants to work in our lives in such a way that at times it's going to be confusing and at times it's going to take massive risk and at times we're not going to understand or know what's going on. And in those moments when he asks us to take a step into the dark that we don't understand, that we can't see, that it's completely against our nature, against our thought processes, against our reason, we need to know that God knows what he's doing. And Gideon said, God, I need to know that you know what you're doing. And God said, go down to this camp. I just want to let you in on something, that I'm not only sovereign over your life, Gideon, but I'm sovereign over your enemies as well. I have gone before you. I need to know, God, that you're orchestrating my sickness, my cancer, my heart problems. I need to know that you're orchestrating this challenging relationship that I wanted to stay in but the other person didn't. I need to know that you're orchestrating this difficult marriage that I'm trying to stay in. I, I need to know that it's by your hand and you're orchestrating the fact that, uh, that you've given me the gift of a special needs child. I need to know that you're orchestrating the mystery illness that I can't find a solution to. Getting is saying, God, I'm fixing to jump into the deep end and I can't swim. And I need to know that this crazy thing that you've called me to do is orchestrated by your providential hand. I need you to strengthen my faith. And God responded twice and God took him to the camp and God gave him insight. Folks, I, I want to tell you this morning that God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. I want to give you three ways that God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. These are simple things. Number one, God is faithful to assure us when we're weak and fearful through his word. This is exactly what came to him in, in verses 7 to 11. The Lord spoke to him and said, okay, you're fearful? You already identified. You're weak? You're scared? Your, your knees are shaking? I want to take you down. Listen to my word, and my word will assure you. Secondly, Assurance comes 
when we gather as the saints, when we hang out with other believers. That's why we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I hope that you've come today and you're facing some circumstances in your life and you're asking some questions and you're wondering what's going on and you're not sure if God is there and you're not sure if he's working in your life. I hope you come today and you're asking some questions. And here's what I want to tell you. The gathering of the saints on Sunday morning or whenever we gather is the thing that is specifically designed to encourage encourage you to encourage you as you see the, the day approaching. That's why we're told don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's through other believers. It's through other believers that our hearts are assured of God's faithfulness. When we are weak and fearful, God uses his word. When we are weak and fearful, God uses other believers. And we, when we are weak and fearful, God uses the circumstances of life. He sneaks down to the camp. He hears a conversation, and it's not an accident. It's a conversation that is sovereignly orchestrated. Here's what I want you to know before we move to verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7. God is not so huge, and we've got this, we've got this messed up view of God. I want to tell you something. You've heard it before a million times. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I, I want to tell you God is a loving God. I want to tell you that God wants you to talk to him. I want to tell you that God wants to reveal himself to you. Don't ever doubt that. And, and God is not so huge and insensitive that he cannot stoop down to reassure us in our fears. God knows that we're weak, and God will not mock us in our weakness. God will respond with compassion and connection. So whatever you think of Gideon and however, you, however dumb you think he was, I can assure you that I've been dumber than he was. I want to know when God is leading me. I want to know when God is working. I want to know when life is painful. I want to know when things are difficult, that, this is, that there is a God who is providential. There is a God who is powerful. There is a God who is personal, and he knows me when I'm struggling in my faith and with assurance. Secondly, God is faithful when we're proud and need humbling. God is faithful when we're proud and need humbling. Look at, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. The spring of Herod is the spring of fear, the spring of trembling. The people of God are a trembling people. They're already scared. They're in the valley of trembling and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill in Morah in the valley. Verse 2, listen to this. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So here's Gideon, who's already weak, and God says, uh, by the way, Gideon, you got 32,000 men. I want you to reduce it down to 300 men. I want you to be weaker than you already are. You're already outnumbered. But now I want you to be even more outnumbered. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And I, I would imagine that that was probably a gut punch to Gideon. I don't know. If it had been me, I would have been like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. 
Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, the one, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water, lapped it up like a dog, 9,700 of them. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all of the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but re retained the 300 men in the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? I, I believe this, this account is absolutely true, and I believe that's exactly what God did. This is the Word of God. And God said, Gideon, I want you to be weaker still. Let me just say two things about this. God is faithful when we are proud and need humbling. The first thing I want you to consider this morning is our pride. I want you to think for just a minute about our pride. The reason that he wanted to reduce them down to 300 men, and you can, a lot of times we hear stories about Gideon and we hear stories about uh, who, you know, somebody lapped the water like a dog and somebody picked it up and kept their eyes open. You can, you can almost be assured of this, that the 300 men that he kept were probably not the mightiest warriors. They were probably men who were weak to put the strength of God on display. That's how God works. That's how God works. But, but he, he says in verse 2, lest Israel boast over me. Look at that verse. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand saved me. We did this ourselves. Another, another way of saying that is this, in order that Israel may not boast against me, not over me. I mean, it is over me, but it's against me. That would be the way we would say it. I don't want Israel to boast against me. One, one writer said this. He said, human nature is such that if there is the thinnest opportunity to boast in ourselves, our own worker effort, we will. I don't know about you, but that's true of me. We love glory. We love credit. We love to boast. We love recognition. We love praise. And, and I won't go into it, but the whole, I cannot turn on ESPN. I used to love to watch sports. I can't stand ESPN. I am so sick of people talking about who's the GOAT. Who's the GOAT in the NFL? Who's the GOAT in the NBA? Who's the GOAT in Major League Baseball? Who's the GOAT of all the GOATs? Now, some of you don't know what a GOAT is, the greatest of all time. Well, what is that? And why do we even sit and watch it? And why do we even think about it? Why do we even talk about it? It's irrelevant. But, but we, need, we need to exalt ourselves and we need to think of ourselves in that proud and arrogant way. We love to celebrate human glory and we love in our sinfulness because of the fall. Love to glorify ourselves. But here's, here's what I want you to know this morning. We were not made for self 
glory. We were created for the glory of God. We were not made to intake, to receive, to absorb, to have any glory go our way. We were made to, to, be, to, to give out glory, to give glory to God, to worship and to praise Him. We were made to give glory. And when we seek glory for ourselves, when we fortify ourselves and secure ourselves and look at ourselves and find ourselves impressed with ourselves, we are against God. We don't see it that way. We are against God. And that's what he told them. And the most frequent and most destructive place that self-glory does its greatest damage is in the religious, spiritual, church world. This is the greatest damage that there is that we should believe that we in our own strength and by our own effort or holiness or self-righteousness can save ourselves, and we can't. We like to call it substitutionary atonement. I cannot save myself because I am a sinner. I am standing before a holy God justly deserving death and hell forever and forever and forever. But the Lord Jesus Christ came and stood in my place and took my sin on himself and died in my place for my sin. I was supposed to die for it. And he did it all. And and if you think that you have to do something to be saved this morning, if you think that you did something to be saved this morning, you are against God. And if you think you have to do something to keep the salvation that he has given you so freely, then you you think that your efforts to maintain your salvation is dependent upon your works. And that is against the work that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. His work was absolutely, completely sufficient to save and to keep us saved. And it is our pride that gets in the way, wants us to take some credit or some glory, wants us to be able to go out to people and show them how great and how spiritual we are. Anything less than God and God alone, saving for His glory and His glory alone is against God. God did not want Israel. God did not want Gideon. God did not want one of those 300 men to walk away and say, I'll tell you what, we sure kicked the Midianites' backsides today. Did you see them running? Hey, man, you did a great job. High five, low five, you know. Let's get our picture made, all three of us, down in the end zone in front of the camera. We just scored a touchdown. I don't think so. I don't think so. All of the glory goes to God and God alone. Let us learn quickly and often that salvation is by God's gracious action alone, not by us earning salvation with our actions. And God leads Gideon to the place where glory can go to none other than the mighty, almighty God for delivering and saving his people. So let us dig into our pride for a minute. There's enough to go around. And we struggle with it. And we love glory. And we hate being rejected. And we hate being neglected. And we hate not being recognized. And we don't like it when somebody else gets some glory and nobody recognized how glorious we are. We are proud people. We are proud people. I speak for myself. I'll let you speak for yourself. But not only do we see pride, but we see God's plan. 
we see a weak man, a weak tribe, a weak leader, a weak army, reduced by 99% from 32,000 to 300 with weak weapons, a horn and a torch and a, a weird plan. And they're supposed to surround the camp, blow the horn, break the, the vase, and watch God work. <laughs> By the way, guys, here's what I want you to take and do battle. I, I, I've got, I've got a, a, a pitcher in there, and I've got a Zippo lighter, and I've got a, a, the horn off of a dead ram. And I want you to go to feed an army that looks like the locust in the field. That was God's plan. Our weakness is God's platform for the dis display of his glory. Ralph Davis said this. He said, because of the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust their proven efforts and methods, to credit their own contributions, to think well of their cleverness, Yahweh frequently insisted his people be reduced to the utter helplessness so that they may recognize that their deliverance can only be chalked up to Yahweh's power and glory. Our weakness is God's platform for the display of his glory. That's precisely what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians when he talked about being lifted up into, I think it was the third heaven, and he said, man, if, if, uh, if you left me there, I'd be running around and talking about um, what I saw. Um, and I'm not going to, if I'm wrong about the second or third heaven, forgive me, but I'm focusing on the verses that followed that. Um, Paul said, I had an amazing experience that would make anybody proud, that would make anybody arrogant, that would make anybody think that they were spiritually superior. But notice what he said. He said, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Are you willing to make that trade? Are you willing to make that trade? And I have to stand before you and tell you I'm not so sure that I am. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to be weak so that God would be strong, so that God's power would be manifested? Are you willing to go through some stuff that you really don't want to go through that may completely reorient and alter your life? Paul said, I experienced some things, and if I could write about them and tell about them, I would be on a world tour, and everybody would be amazed, and everybody would be buying my books, and I would be a multimillionaire, and it would be on the New York Times bestseller. But instead, I got a thorn in the flesh. And it caused me to recognize just how weak I am before a holy God. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those are sobering, those are sobering words that fly in the face of American Christianity. And they fly in our face when we have a problem and we get mad at God. They fly in our face when we have a problem and we quit on God. We feel abandoned by God. God is faithful when we are proud and need humbling. 
God is faithful when we're proud and need humbling. Thirdly, God is faithful when we're weak and need delivering. You can see, if you'll go to verse 15, as soon, and as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the men up, sent them out with their, their lighters and their lanterns and, and their ram's horn, and they did exactly what God told them to do, and they won a great victory that day. And you can read the rest of the story of Judges chapter 7, but I just want to give you three thoughts as we think about it and think about the celebration of that victory. First of all, when we understand the perpetual faithfulness of God, we worship Him for who He is even before He does anything. When we understand the perpetual faithfulness of God, we worship who He is even before He does anything. He heard what God was going to do, and what did He do? He worships. We don't wait and worship after God does something. We worship God for who he is. We don't worship him for what he does. We don't, we don't say, okay, God, if you give me victory, I'll worship you. But if you don't give me victory, I won't worship you. But he understood that God was, was profoundly personal, that he was infinitely powerful, and that he was absolutely providential over all things. And he said, this is the God. When you find the God, no matter what's going on or what's happening to you, you might better stop, drop, and roll and cry out to him in worship. Secondly, when we understand the faithfulness of God, we're, we're, we are willing to risk everything to obey Him. When we understand the faithfulness of God, we are willing to risk everything to obey Him. What did He say? He said, first of all, I've heard I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship. Then He says, all right, guys, get up, let's go. All 300 of us against who knows how many of these locusts and camels that you can't even count. Get up and let's go. We're going to go risk our lives. It's probably going to cost us our lives, but we are going. When we understand the faithfulness of God, we are willing to risk everything to obey him. Thirdly, when we understand the faithfulness of God, we embrace our weakness as we anticipate his victory. When we understand the faithfulness of God, we embrace our weakness. We embrace our weakness as we anticipate his victory. He was changed completely on the inside. And he was not worried about his weakness or the strength of the army. All he was concerned about was a personal, powerful, providential, faithful God. Let me just share a few thoughts as I close. Number one, Living in God's kingdom is not a life of comfort and ease. Listen carefully. It is a life where we're constantly called upon to risk everything for the sake of the deliverance of others. Did you hear that? If you are a believer, you have been called upon, constantly called upon to risk everything for the sake of the deliverance of of others. God saved us to sacrificially and irrationally lay down our lives for his kingdom and his glory. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation and humbled himself even to death. That's supposed to be my mind. That's supposed to be your mind if we are in Christ Jesus. We are to be a kingdom of humble people who are willing to die for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of the king. Let that sink in. Are you living a life of risk? Some may call it faith. Some may call it risk. Does everything have to kind of fit your schematic rationally before you'll do it? I just can't, I can't figure it out. I don't want to take a chance. I don't want to do anything that's going to set me back. I don't want to do anything that's going to cost me. I don't want to do anything that's going to hurt me. I don't want to do anything that's going to affect the bottom line, right? Are, 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 you, are you willing to take risk to see other people come to know Christ? Secondly, we know that we're at a major life intersection in our relationship with God when we hear him clearly and still need tangible assurance. <laughs> hey, what do you mean by that? God is telling Gideon he's going to do impossible things through him, and Gideon is standing there saying, uh, I don't think so. I can't do that. Let me say it again. We know that we're at a major life intersection in our relationship with God when we hear him clearly and still need tangible assurance. When is the last time that you sensed that you were being called to something so challenging and unusual that you needed a double dose of clarity and assurance from God? That's how God works. God's not saying go do something easier than the last easy thing you did. God is saying, go do something so crazy that everybody will know that you couldn't have done it, that the only thing that could have been done was if I did it through you. And that ought to cause us to stop and say, uh, I need you to say that to me again, maybe a little differently. When is the last time God asked you to do something and it just scared you almost to death? Because that's how God works. Thirdly, the body of Christ has never been an assemblage of superheroes. Jesus discussed that in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. My kingdom is this kingdom of humble people. My kingdom of this is a kingdom of people who are last. My kingdom is not a people who lord over. My kingdom is not a kingdom of impressive people. The kingdom of heaven has always been a ragtag group of weak, outnumbered people the least of these, the dregs of society, clay pots who know that they're helpless and hopeless unless God and God alone shows up. But it's also a conglomeration of people that are confident to do the will of God once he tells them to. Are you certain that God has supernaturally saved you out of the world and into his body? The body of Christ is not a place for celebrity or celebrities or superstars. It's for weak people. Ralph Davis, the commentator that I mentioned earlier, said this. In light of this, we need to alter our current stereotypes about what a servant of Christ is. We sometimes dupe ourselves into thinking that a real servant of Christ is only someone who is a dynamic, assured, confident, brash, fearless, witty, adventuresome, or glamorous, uh, or glamorous with frequent appearances on TBN. But the reality is this, Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk, strengthens their hands in the oddest ways, and makes them able to stand for him. And that's exactly what he did with Gideon. Hebrews chapter 11 points this out for us. 
Listen to this, Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on a dry land, but the Egyptians, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place. Verse 32, and, and, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. It was all out of their weakness. Our weakness is God's platform to display His glory. Where are you this morning? I was talking with Chris, and he was sharing with me uh, a young man who's been a part of this congregation. He was in a relationship, and um, the other person in the relationship called him out, called out his sin, called him out as being, at the very least, a shallow Christian, and maybe even accused him of being a phony Christian, and it hit him hard in his heart, and consequently, he came face to face with his sin and started confessing his sin. He went to his family and confessed his sin. He goes to all of his friends and he confesses his sin. And Chris asked him, he said, man, what's going on with you? Do you think you've just come to faith? He said, yes, my life has been radically transformed. I was talking with another brother this week and, and this brother said, yeah, this guy's challenging me to come clean and confess my sin and follow Christ. His life has been radically transformed and He's not the strongest of men. In fact, I remember when he was in high school and I'd see him riding his bike down the road to high school and cars would be backed up behind him while he's riding his bike to school. And he really wasn't too worried about it. I don't know if he had headphones on or what. I would have, I would have been really upset if people were upset at me. But, but he's, he's not, he's not a, a, a super muscle guy. He's just a man who God came and radically transformed his heart. Now he's trying to tell everybody around him about the saving power of Jesus Christ. God takes weak people like you and like me, and he does uh, profoundly unusual things through us, like sharing the gospel with those around us who are lost. And he does it completely by his power and his work through his death and his burial and his resurrection. I would plead with you this morning, our weakness is God's platform for the display of His glory. Embrace your weakness and ask God to use it to bring great glory to Himself through your life. Don't be angry. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't quit. Our weakness is the platform that God uses to display His glory. We see that glory displayed in no greater way than our Lord Jesus Christ who came and walked among men, not in strength, but in weakness, bowing down and washing people's feet, being scourged and beaten and mocked and made fun of by the religious leaders. That was our Lord. That's our Savior. That's our King. That's the one that we follow. How did he live? I'm smitten by the text over and over again. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And we look at the life of Christ and how he was sent and how he was humble and how he was broken and how he died. And it is through his weakness and it is through his death and it is through the power of the Father raising him up 
from the grave. That we have access to a life of weakness that absolutely means much more than a life of strength in our flesh. And that's why we do communion. We remember our Lord. We remember His life that was given for us. We remember that He has called us to follow Him. We remember that He has died to change us on the inside so that we can, so that we can live for His glory. And so we celebrate all that He has done, His death, His burial, and resurrection. And so if you have the, the cup, if you'll open that this morning, let us, let us remember the Lord. The wafer, just a reminder, folks, this is nothing magical. This is not magic. This is simply us doing this to remember the Lord. To remember the Lord. And Jesus said, I want you to eat this, ingest this. This picture paints more words than we could even begin to imagine. And I want you to remember my body when you do. Remember my body that was given for you. Remember that I laid down my body and my life was poured out out of my love for you because of your sin so that you could come and be a part of the family. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And he said, drink ye all of it. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we ask you to take the truth of your word. We ask you to take the life of Gideon. We ask you to take the testimony of our faithful God and change our hearts this morning. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would awaken them. I pray that, Lord, you would let them see that there is no way that we can survive in our pride. There's no way that we can be victorious in our human fleshly victories. I pray, Father, that you would save them today. And I pray, Lord, for those of us that struggle when we hit those seasons or circumstances of weakness. I pray that you would excite us when weakness comes, knowing that you're setting us up to display your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.